From First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, you're listening to a message from the series Traction, Getting Past Your Past. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. We are beginning a new series today called Traction. It's eight weeks looking at what keeps us stuck spiritually. When I think about the word stuck, I mean, can you just say that word? Stuck. Like, I'm always reminded of a story uh, that occurred somewhere in the early 90s. I was a youth pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. We took about 12 to 15 high schoolers to Mexico to partner with Lanny Ashcraft. We'd stay at his, um, I use the word compound in a good way there. We'd stay at his compound and then We'd drive a few hours each day to certain mountainous areas, and we'd be involved in evangelistic uh, campaigns and witnessing. And it was on that trip we almost got stoned, uh, literally, leaving one of the villages. That's another story of another day. But it's in the same trip that we were leaving his compound after a night of heavy rain the night before, and the bus we were in got stuck. It was a bus somewhat like the one I'll show you on the screen behind me, about that size, there were only about 15 of us plus his workers, but we had a lot of equipment, so we took a pretty large bus, and it got stuck about the same way. This is not a picture of Mexico, I don't think, but it shows at least an image of what we were dealing with. And so Lanny said, everybody off, we've got to try to find a way to nudge this bus into some, some kind of dry ground to make some progress, because everything hinged on us getting unstuck. Any kind of um, ministry or opportunity or campaign evangelism, it depended on us getting out of that compound, down the driveway, and into the mountainous areas. So I was thinking to myself, how can 15, 16 high schoolers move a bus? Plus he had his workers, and he had several. He had one really big guy, I forget his name, I want to say it was Jim, I'm not sure, but Jim was at least 6'4", 6'5", and broad, he was just a brute of a guy, just a Samson kind of individual. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll get on the side of the bus, and I'll push. You guys get kind of behind it. We'll see if we can get it to find some dry ground. And I was thinking, well, Jim could probably push the bus by himself. So he did. He got on the side of the bus that was near the, um, the non-road side. We got behind it, and we began to push. The driver would kind of do the gas and the, and the uh, let off to kind of rock it a little bit and try to get a little motion. And Well, actually, when the bus began to move, it moved the opposite direction. And what was on the other side of Jim was this big cactus plant. Now, again, this is not the actual one. It was one, though, that had the broad type of leaves. And the one I remember formed like a bed. Uh, Not a sleep number bed, okay? But it was like this, it was just almost like a, a chair, a cushion, just waiting for Jim. And we thought he'd push, we'd push, and it would kind of go a certain direction, we'd get out of it. But actually, it slid the opposite direction, so it slid away from the road. And Jim let out this loud, you're like, oh no, it's going the wrong way. And he just jumped back, and he fell, uh, spread eagle, right into this cactus bed. And he let out the loudest yell I, I think I ever heard. Ironically... Because the bus slid that way, it caught some of the dry ground outside of the road. We were pushing, and it lunged forward, and we got unstuck while Jim was stuck. And so he's sitting there, help, help. And, you know, 
not to be too graphic, but he can't get up on his own because if he leans forward, he puts pressure on the wrong part if you're on a cactus plant. Are you with me? And so he's laying there, and he's like, I need help. So we came over, and we had to pull him up like a board, just, you know, real stiff. And for several hours on that bus ride, we were driving up to the mountains. Uh, you know, he was getting help pulling those things out of parts of his backside. I don't recall a lot of detail. I know he didn't have a lot of problems for the next few days. He, he had some swelling and everything. I don't think they were poisonous. I don't know all the details, but he survived. We continued. The trip went fine. Uh, but I always think about that story when I think about times we're stuck because it symbolizes for me kind of what we have to wrestle with spiritually. Like Getting unstuck is going to take some effort. It may be costly. It will be risky. It will probably be painful. <laughs> it takes the help of others. But it is always well worth it. Right, church? So let me ask you a question. Spiritually speaking, where are you stuck right now? What rut does the bus of your life just seem to be spinning its wheels? Did you know God wants you to get traction out of the rut you're in? I'm not speaking to you as some health and wealth theologian. I'm not coming to you as a man-centered preacher. I'm just making some basic exhortations and claims that God wants you to grow. Did you know? That's what we're talking about. He wants you to make progress, observable, significant progress in your spiritual walk. I'll just prove it to you using the Bible. Here's some uh, samplings of verses that show you God desires for you to make traction. Or if you want to use a more sanctimonious word, he desires for you to grow. Right? Look at this verse, Ephesians 4.15. As we speak the truth in love, we are to what? Grow up in him. Here's 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Like newborn babes, we long for pure spiritual milk that by it we may what? Grow up. Here's 2 Peter chapter 3. We're commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Hebrews 5.12. Here's the implication that you should have been teachers, but you need someone to teach you again. He says you should have been growing way past where you are right now. You've gone the opposite direction. You're stuck. You should have made much better traction and be teaching. You need to be taught again. You kind of sense the rebuke in this, can't you? And then I love Hebrews 6.1. He says, let us move on past the elementary doctrines and let us say it with me. Go on to maturity. Grow up. Make traction. So God wants you out of the ruts that keep you stuck. So in thinking through that and just knowing that this is something people deal with, I, I want to spend about eight weeks looking at what I think are six of the more serious ruts, places that people get stuck. All right? Now, there are many in the Bible. I've chosen six that I think speak to the ones that most stuck Christians deal with. Here's a list of them. The lack of genuine regeneration, the rot of lingering bitterness, the absence of biblical forgiveness, the trap of wrong thinking, 
the treadmill of old habits, and the leash of negative relationships. All of these we'll investigate biblically to, to say, well, how, can, how can we address these if they're in our life so that they don't hold us back from going on to maturity? In fact, you'll get a card when you leave today. It'll have these six things on there. And can I just encourage you, if you're at work, the grocery store, the bank, hanging out with a mom's group, maybe a neighbor and her kids, maybe you're at a ball game, you're coaching, whatever, and someone were to mention something, how they just seem like they're stuck and it maybe kind of leans towards one of these things, just listen with ears, have your radar on. And if you had that card with you, just say, you know what, our church is talking about that. We're talking about this thing about forgiveness. We're talking about relationships. You ought to drop by. You might find some help and just get them the card. Maybe they'll show up. And who knows what God could do with a single simple invitation to hear the gospel. Are you with me? So just have the card handy with you, carry it with you, and, and see how God could use it. We're going to talk about these six things over eight weeks, with the goal being that you get out of the rut you're in, make some traction. The first one I want to address is the lack of genuine regeneration. To do so, I'd like to investigate a time in Israel's history, what may actually be their worst time ever, and just see how did God provide hope for change when they were at their worst? Like, what did God do for them when it seemed like nothing could be done, when things were hopeless? How in the world did they actually make traction in that situation? Let's find out what happened to them and learn from that. I want to ask you to turn to Ezekiel 37. This is a book of the Bible that describes for us not only judgment upon Judah, the southern kingdom, but it gives for us as well hope for Judah. As you're finding Ezekiel 37, the book in the Old Testament, here's some background for you. Let me set the stage. Ezekiel was written probably about 10 years after the southern kingdom, known as Judah, they were captured by the Babylonians. Now, if you're wondering the southern kingdom, what's going on there, do you recall our series in the kings and the Samuels? Remember how the kingdoms divided? There was a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. Well, in the 700s, the northern kingdom, they were captured by Assyria. Oh, 100 or 200 years later, the southern kingdom, 586, it fell to the Babylonians. These were the primary ways God was judging His people for their idolatrous, wicked practices. And so He told them in the south, you're going to be captured by the Babylonians and you're going to spend 70 years in exile. This is when Ezekiel was written. In fact, most commentators and historians believe Ezekiel never really ministered in the city of Jerusalem at all, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. Do you know that? His ministry was in a foreign country preaching to God's people who were in captivity. The bulk of his ministry was done in that fashion. And he was consistently preaching about the place they're in is God's judgment, but there's a place of hope because God's going to bring you out in 70 years. So Ezekiel had this dual role, kind of proclaiming the tough news and yet providing hopeful news. So you see that in this book. Chapter 37 is the chapter in which we find much hope. And it's that chapter I want to look at primarily the first 14 verses. 
as we see really what is the seedbed of true change, what actually empowers any kind of lasting change, we're going to see this in this chapter and apply it to our lives. So begin with me, Ezekiel 37, verse 1. Here's Ezekiel writing to the house of Israel, primarily the southern kingdom. They're in the land of Babylon. They know they've got about 60 more years left. It seems pretty hopeless. And so in this setting, God says to Ezekiel, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. What kind of valley was it? It was a valley full of bones. But not just bones. He says, He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, so they were visible bones. And behold, they were very dry. They were visible and they were parched. They were burnt. This is a picture of a devastated tragedy. Something terrible has happened here. People have died and there's no flesh left. There's no uh, sinew. There's no corpses. There's just bone after bone after bone. It's a lifeless, hopeless situation. In this vision, God then says to Israel in verse 3, excuse me, to Ezekiel in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. I think that's a coded way of saying, I have no idea. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt hopeless? You ever felt like, God, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm out of answers. My faith is weak. I want to say you can fix this, but I don't have a clue how. And God, I just, I don't know, but I know you know. Like you're even afraid to say God will do it. Like you know he can, but you, you just don't know. And so you're just, and your answer is like, God, you know. Don't you love Ezekiel's transparency here? Lord, you know. That's the question. The question Ezekiel's being asked is this, is there any hope in this valley of dry, parched, burnt bones? Is there any chance of life when all you see is death? I'm asking Ezekiel, is there? God, you know. Verse 4 Give us the answer. He said to me, prophesy over these bones. In other words, preach to them. Share the word of God with them, he says. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, hear the word of the Lord, O dry bones. And can I just say, even though it's a vision, that's a crazy request. If you said to me, Todd, could you make your way to the, one of the cemeteries and just start preaching to the bones? We'd really appreciate it. Like, I would say, hey, we need to talk a little later. That's just a weird thing to ask. Like, who preaches the bones? You want live people hearing, right? But God, in this vision, says, Ezekiel, you start preaching the word of the Lord to these bones. Say this, verse 5, Behold, I will cause breath to enter in, into you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Wow. 
okay, I'll preach that message that God, you can bring life when it seems like all we see is death. Verse seven, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound. Do you see this building here? Can you sense the setting and the escalation occurring? There was a sound and behold, a rattling. Clink, clink, clink. Things are coming together. And the bones, they came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. Okay, God's doing something. But there's no breath in them. Draw a line between verse 8 and verse 9, would you? Because I think what we have here symbolically and metaphorically is a picture of how the Lord works in people. The word comes and we can sense God is doing something. But something has to happen when the word lands on a dead man's bones. The Spirit of God has to bring life to it. Look at verse 9. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Remember, they're moving, they're rattling, they're joining up, but there's no life in them. The word of God's been spoken. Now the Spirit of God comes and breathes life into those who've heard the word of God. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What a vision. Now maybe you're wondering, what is the breath there between verses 9 and 10? The words used in the Old Testament to describe either the breath of man the wind in the atmosphere, or the breath of God, i.e. the Holy Spirit. Which does he mean here? We don't know definitively. And good men and women take stands on all three of those. Here's where I land. Based on the context of this first section, verses 1 through 14, and because of the word spirit in several places, I think he's using poetic metaphorical language to describe the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, which is necessary for those who hear the word of God to come to life. So I think he's poetically saying the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and when those things interact, there will be life. So I think he's speaking here of the Holy Spirit. So the question, verses 1 through 3, is there any hope? Verses 4 through 10, yes. When God's Word and God's Spirit are involved, there's hope. What does it mean? Verse 11. So then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So he's speaking here of both northern kingdom people, those ten tribes, southern kingdom people, those two tribes, Behold, they say our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And that was a correct estimation, church. They had been cut off. God had punished them and intentionally, distinctly uh, disciplined them for their wickedness and sinfulness. I mean, king after king, capped off with Manasseh, who was involved in child sacrifices, Kings abominating um, uh, in front of God with, with many wives and building up their armies, violating the laws that were given to kings as well as to the nation. 
leading people astray to have sexual orgies and idolatrous practices on high places, generation after generation, filling the land God had given them with just terribly sinful and hedonistic practices. All of this defamed God's name and His holiness. They were to be a light to the nations. And they were just like the nations. This is not what God intended. And so He sent them into captivity. He punished them for their sins. Yes, they were cut off. They were, as the scriptures here say, um, dried up. They had lost hope. So what does the vision say? That though they had lost hope and given up, that when the Spirit of God and the Word of God were involved, there would still be hope, and God was not finished with His people. He says, you say to them that thus says the Lord God, verse 12, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel And you shall know that I am the Lord. Very similar to verse 6. Draw a line, connect those two. He's showing his overarching purpose. I'm going to breathe life into you so that you know that I am God. Not you, and not your idols, and not the other nations. Verse 13. You shall know that I am the Lord. I'll open your graves. I'll raise you from the graves of my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Yes, there's hope, but only when God does it. And so it takes the Word of God and the Spirit of God intersecting. And when those things occur, Almighty God does what only Almighty God can do. He brings life when all we see is death. Now, textually, he's speaking here to the house of Israel, the whole house of Israel. And what he's referring to are two things. Listen very carefully. I think initially, this was fulfilled when they came out of exile at captivity, 60 years from the, the writing of this. And Nehemiah was, was very helpful in leading them back, and they rebuilt the walls of the city. Ezra was very instrumental in reestablishing the right kind of worship. And Israel sensed a a renewed revival. Zerubbabel, uh, different prophets and leaders in those times brought Israel to a place where they were once again worshiping the Lord. But it wasn't still uh, as this passage seems to lay out for us because as you read the rest of 37 and you read about the two sticks that were merged, then you find out that there's, a, a one, there's one coming who will rule them in the name of David. He calls him the prince here. Like, well, this is hundreds of years after David, so how will David come back and be their prince and their king when he's dead? So you begin to realize, oh, he's talking about sometime in the future that's even more perfectly fulfilled. And so I believe this is speaking of that 1,000-year time frame known as the millennium, when God will gather his true people together And they'll be under the visible kingship of Christ for 1,000 years. He will reign from Jerusalem. And he will fulfill this perfectly. He will be their God. They will be his people. They will know that he is their God. This is what I think this points to ultimately. So understand that this was written to initially the whole house of Israel, I think as it unfolds in the New Testament and in the millennial time, it's going to be the whole people of God. And that's where this finds its ultimate fulfillment. Either way, however you arrive at that, 
Here's what we see fundamentally beneath it all. None of this happens if God does not breathe life into this situation. Would we all agree with that? Regardless of whether you fall eschatologically or even on the word breath, we would all agree. None of this occurs if God doesn't move. Bones don't just stand up and connect and get life on their own. (laughs) It takes an outside force. And here, the scriptures are clear. Only God could bring about this kind of life. So as you think through this, a couple of other, maybe just one other understanding of this. When you you see this occurring, you see it textually in Israel's perspective. Here initially, they're released back to Jerusalem in 60 years, but also then ultimately the millennium. But we see this individually as people of God as well. Because much of this same language is used in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul did not say you were in a bad way, (laughs) did he? He didn't say you were wounded in your sins. What did Paul say? You were dead. In other words, you were a pile of dead bones. You're dealing with your own valley. And can these bones live? Only when the Spirit of God and the Word of God as Paul says, makes alive an individual, is there any kind of spiritual life? We don't save ourselves. We don't bring ourselves to life. We as dead bones have to be acted upon by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And when that occurs, then in the old King James language, God quickens us. He makes us alive together with Christ in God. So you see this chapter, even in the New Testament, you find that that when God is in a situation, that's where real life is found. That's where power is. And apart from God intervening, handling the intersection of His Word and His Spirit, there will be no life. There will be no eternal, lasting, sustaining transformation. And so our take-home truth just in this section, as well as comparing the Old Testament and seeing Israel's history, it's staring us in the face. Let's just admit what we see in this text. That only Almighty God can bring about spiritual life and change. In fact, will you say that with me? It's very simple today, very to the point, but it's the clearest understanding of what's happening in these 14 verses. Say it together, would you? Only Almighty God can bring about spiritual life and change. Now you realize that in a pluralistic society, you just voiced a very exclusive, narrow-minded statement, right? (laughs) You're going to make great preachers. You're going to make good Ezekiels. Because this is really the driving force of the vision. In one sense, you can hear the implication of God saying to the bones, you'll still remain a heap of dead bones if I don't intervene. You can go through the motions, you can pretend, you can empower yourselves up, you can do whatever you want, put markers, headstones, monuments, but until I intervene with my word and my spirit, it's always going to be a pile of dead bones. So church, we need to grasp 
that until God brings life to our dead bones, we will not make any traction, headway, progress. There is no traction until God gives us traction. And one of the reasons many people inside the church organizationally never seem to grow, make traction, progress, use the word you want, but they seem stuck decade after decade after decade in the sins that just keep dogging them week after week, month after month, year after year. Why they never seem to be able to deal with things. You know why? It's because they've never genuinely been regenerated. They're just dead bones clanking and rattling around together with no life. The word we're talking about here, the $10 word we're talking about, is really the word regeneration. This is what this vision is representing. That it takes God to bring life. Otherwise, there is no life. And it takes exclusively God to bring life. Now, when you think about that word regeneration, can I ask you to see it from two angles? I want you to see it from the angle of a pilot and the angle of a surgeon. Okay? Maybe we have some of those in the room. I don't know. But pilots look at things and they, they have a large 30,000 foot view, right? So when someone, if you're a pilot and you're looking at regeneration, you're saying things like this. Wow, man, I love the way God saves people. I love the way he changes them. I love the way God makes all things new. And it just seems like one big thing that happens and and you're just thrilled for it. And that is true, by the way. Do you know that? From a pilot's point of view, regeneration is just God saving people. You love it. Amen. That's true from a pilot's point of view. I would agree with that. From a pilot's point of view, that's what that looks like. Overarching 30,000 foot, God just saves people and changes them. Amen. We keep flying. But if you're a surgeon, you wear the long glasses, you know, and you're digging in deep, and you're separating organs, and you're looking inside at places that very few people look, you see it a lot more intensely. You know what you see? You actually see that regeneration is a part of salvation. So from a pilot's point of view, is regeneration salvation? Yes. And we say amen to that. But from a surgeon's point of view, regeneration is actually a part of salvation. It's like the very first thing that happens when someone comes to Christ. Now listen very carefully. I'm going to explain to you briefly a process that happens in milliseconds spiritually. None of us really think about salvation this way, and I think it's actually good that we don't normally because you can't really understand it. Paul said one time, who knows the mind of Christ, the, the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God? These are things hard to grasp. But surgeon like understandings of salvation mean that Before you can actually call upon the Lord, you have to be made alive in your spirit to do that. Because dead people don't call on God. Are you with me? Bones don't decide, you know what, I think I'm just going to get up today. Something's got to breathe in you to be able to exercise faith to believe in the gospel you're hearing. That's regeneration. Now this happens in milliseconds in the normal course of life. Someone's hearing the gospel, whether it's one-on-one or in a service or maybe in a, in, a, in a TV show or a video or and they're reading it and they realize, oh, I'm lost. I need God. And then they believe and God saves them. That's how we see it and that's good. But 
inside the heart, it happens in stages. And before anyone can ever call on God, there's this conviction, there's this realization, and, th- and all that's because God's regenerated. He's brought life to them, and then there's conversion, and then there's justification, and then there's adoption. All these things are happening. Is it all salvation? Yes, that's the pilot's view. Man, God saves people. Hallelujah. But when you look at a surgeon's angle and you see all that's happening, you realize that none of that could happen. If at some point early on, God didn't breathe life and give a dead person the ability to even respond to the gospel message. Aren't you glad that one day when you were lost, maybe you were 12, maybe you were 8, maybe you were 32, maybe you were 60-something, but the day you were lost... Aren't you glad that one of those days God and suddenly you came to life and you saw and heard things you'd never seen or heard and it all made sense because the Spirit of God and the Word of God were now being acted upon you and your pile of dead bones became living. Aren't you thankful for that? Boy, I sure am. As a 14-year-old kid, God looked down when I was not even seeking him. And he, I see Craig and Stacy back there. God, when you weren't even seeking him. Story after story and section for section of God's regenerating breath inside your dead bones. That's why I like the surgeon view, I'm telling you. Because we see just how gracious and merciful God is to do such an incredible thing in our, in our lives. To, to breathe upon us so that we would respond to the gospel no longer in a no, but in a yes. And we would then exercise faith from Him to take our stand on the gospel and be saved. What a gracious and merciful God. When that occurs, listen very carefully, when that occurs, there is no change you won't make. And until that occurs, there's no change you can make. Oh, you can pretend for a bit, you can do some actions. You can play the part, but any real, lasting, substantial, eternal transformation, it's impossible to God breathe. And when he does breathe, there there is nothing that will stop God from changing you. And that's why I think the seedbed for any kind of traction is the almighty breath of God on our pile of dead bones. And if you have not been genuinely regenerated, if you are not legitimately converted, if you are not authentically born again by the word of God and the spirit of God intersecting your life, you will never find traction out of the rut you're in. This is why this is the first week. 
the first bottom floor understanding we have to have. That apart from Almighty God breathing upon us and bringing spiritual life and change, we don't stand the chance at getting out of our ruts. We'll be stuck forever. So, question. To be the captain of the obvious here. Has God breathed on your dead bones? That means that we have to ask and re- ask ourselves a question and realize something. Change is not fundamentally now about a set of actions I do. It is more about a posture under God. You see how sometimes in change we, we want to make a list of three things here and six steps over there and ten tips for this and uh, you know self-help that. And we have this list of things that we think we can do. But the truth is... All of those actions are meaningless if God's not empowered them and breathed on them, right? So what is change fundamentally more about? It's not really about your protocol of actions, what you do or don't do. It's about your posture before God. What is your posture before God? Are you humble under the almighty holiness of a great God who mercifully saves people? Are you still trying to think, well, it's it's my efforts, my actions, it's what I can bring to the table? Mm -mm. Change starts with realizing that fundamentally it's not about our protocol of actions at all. It's about our posture under a great and holy God. And can I just say to you, if you read Ezekiel 36, you find this being the point God is making. He says to to Israel in chapter 36, I'm going to act upon you in good ways. I'm going to bring you to freedom. I'm going to breathe into you and bring life. He said, but I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm like, well, it seems like you are. He says, I'm doing this for my sake. Now, if you think that's crazy, it is. No one in this room could ever say that. You would sin if you did. If you said to your kids, hey, Manny, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. Vince would be close to sinning if not sinning. That's arrogant. In fact, we're called to live selfless lives. We're called to think of others' needs, right? But God is so intrinsically and essentially holy. He is so other than us. That he can actually say, Israel, I'm not doing this for you. I am doing it for me. And there's nothing sinful about it. That's the God you're under. That's the God who breathes life into you. That's the God who can see a a situation that just stinks with death and can bring hope and life to it. That's the God who, even saying to his people, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for me. Does not sin in the least. No hint of unrighteousness. He can say that. So change isn't because we're doing something great. We figured out a secret technique. We've got now the, the nine steps. It's because we see, wow, God is in full, absolute, sovereign control. I'll come up under that God. And God, you do whatever you need to do for your great name's sake, including change me. When that is our posture, that our sin reeks in the nostrils of God. 
but that in his mercy, he loves us and saves us when that is our posture. You know what? God will change us. This is why I'm convinced many church members, not just in our church, but in Christendom in general, are fooling themselves. They're bags of dead bones and they stay trapped and enslaved to the same sins decade after decade. There's no observable spiritual progress and they keep humanly trying with extreme effort to make these bones live and they never do. What they need is not another self-help book, sermon series, small group. What they need is the of God. Is that hard to figure out sometimes? Like, how does that happen? When does it occur? At times, it's not hard, but, you know, Jesus said to Nicodemus one time, uh, Look at the wind. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, but you know it's blowing. And then he said, so it is with the Spirit of God. So there's something about regeneration that we don't quite get, but when it happens, you sure know it, don't you? So I just want to ask you this question again. When you look at your life, is there evidence that God's breathed on your pile of bones. Now there's certain things we're not saying by this, and with this I close. We are saying, like we said here, that a posture before God is fundamentally what change is all about. It's not an emphasis on ourselves and what we do, it's really about God and seeing Him in all of His greatness and holiness, and then He will change us. But we're not saying these three things quickly. We're not saying that actions don't matter at all. All right? Actions do matter, but they're proof, not cause. So, you know, I watch Alan over here, and he's doing something, and he makes really good progress. It's observable. He's making good traction. So I say, I'm going to do that. So I take the very same actions Alan does, and I go over here and do them, thinking, I'll get the same result. No. That's making actions causal. But what I'm watching is actually resultant. Something inside Alan's happening that's making him now do certain things. I'm taking the, the, the fruit and trying to make it the root. Are you with me? So be careful. This is why copycat Christianity is so dangerous. You can't manufacture spiritual life. Only God can give it. So we're not saying actions don't matter, but they must be seen in the right place. They're fruit, not root. We're also not saying this, that someone who hasn't changed yet isn't truly saved. It is true, however, that it's possible that someone who isn't changing isn't truly saved. I get this criticism a lot because I'm a stickler that where God's seed is truly planted, it will grow. But the Bible never gives us a time frame. So sometimes growth in one person may be three months, three years. It may be 20 years. I'm not the one to determine the time frame. But I will emphatically stick to what I've said for 25 years of preaching. Where God's seed is planted, 
there will be fruit at some point in some way. So you have to wrestle with this. This is not an issue with me and you. This is an issue with you and God. Don't get distracted. Listen very carefully. If there's never change, is your time frame just really long? Or do you not have God's seed? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. So we have biblical warrant to ask ourselves in the mirror, do I really belong to God? Have I been regenerated? Does my life indicate I'm a child of God? And John said in chapter 3, verse 9 of his first epistle, 1 John 3, 9, anyone who keeps on sinning does not know God. But he who knows God does not keep sinning because his seed remains in him. See what John's saying there? That the, the seedbed for all lasting change, though it's incremental, often very slow and gradual, there is change. And the seedbed for all of that is God's seed. So if you don't see gradual, incremental, eventual change in some way, quit thinking you're a Christian. You actually may be lost and on your way to hell. Because you've not had God's breath in your life. So we're not saying that everyone who doesn't change is lost. We're just saying that it's possible that that could be you. You may be the slower Christian on a longer trajectory, possibly. But you actually may be one of the ones who you're never growing because you do not have the seed of God in you. That's a possibility. Have the courage as a man or woman to wrestle with that in the mirror. Your issue's not with me. Your issue's with God. And lastly, we're not saying this. That genuine regeneration is the, the, the one-stop fix-it shop, okay? <laughs> I got saved, life's perfect. Uh, that, that's not true, right? In fact, the minute you get saved, life will probably get harder. Which is why many people turn away after a few months. They're like, I didn't sign up for this. Well, actually, you, d- you did. <laughs> but someone didn't tell you that. I'm sorry. It actually will get very difficult. Satan will try to pull you away and drown you. We do say this, though, that regeneration is the first stop in God's chain shop. You with me? And if, if you want God to change you, and you've not had this action occur, All your other efforts are going to be fueled. They'll be temporary. They'll be man-made. You'll be white-knuckling your way through life, and you'll quit eventually, and you'll give up. But when God is fueling our change efforts, it's unstoppable. It still may be long, gradual, eventual, incremental, yes, but it is unstoppable because he will finish what he started in you. I've got to close. Let me just ask you again the question that we all know is on the table before us. Has God breathed on your pile of bones? If he has, listen very carefully, if he has, and you feel like you're in some ruts, this is great news to you. That means that God will not leave you like uh, a stuck bus. And I'm not sure what he's going to use, how much pain it will be, and who's involved to get you out of that. But if God's breathed on you, 
He will change you. Have hope. It also means this, though, that if he hasn't, the rut you're in, you're not leaving anytime soon. So, has God breathed on your dead pile of bones? Oh, I pray this morning. If he hasn't, your eyes will be opened. The Spirit of God and the Word of God will intersect, and he will on your life for his name's sake. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.